Hey, thank you for checking out our sermons online at Coastal Community Church. We're so glad that uh, you're using these sermons to supplement your spiritual growth. But one of the things we're really passionate about at Coastal is that you have a local church. And so while we encourage you to, to make use of these sermons to supplement your spiritual growth, if you don't have a local church, we would encourage you to find a Bible-believing uh, church in your community. If you live in our community, we'd love for you to visit with us. So uh, we uh, are in Yorktown, Virginia. We meet on 101 Village Avenue, and we would love for you to come and check us out. We have three sermons service times, 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11 and, uh, on Sunday morning. And so if you live in the Virginia area and the Yorktown area on the peninsula, we would love for you to come and check us out. We're going to be starting a, a new sermon series um, here in the, in the late winter uh, called Beginnings. And we're going to look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And that's going to be covering creation to Noah. And, uh, you know, this is an important series for us as we uh, at Coastal like to lift up the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason it's important is kind of like when you're at the mall and you're trying to find a store and you, and you look at the map on the mall. And if you don't know where you are, where your beginning place is, which usually on a map is marked with a big red X that says you are here. If you don't know your starting point, then you don't know where you're going. And so we think the beginning book of the Bible, Genesis, is very important for us to understand how and why we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we hope you'll investigate for the next eight weeks uh, the series that we're doing together called Beginnings. I forgot about the... Uh the creepy music that plays right after the, uh, like, man, that was such a sweet song to end on, and then we, that happened, and, and if you haven't connected yet, the, this is a sound wave, that's what, if, I don't know why you wouldn't have gotten that, but for those of you that have been curious about that, that's what it is. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. We are, uh, we've been going through the last few weeks a series called um, Beginnings, where we've been examining uh, Genesis chapter 1 through 11, Genesis chapters 1 through 11, and uh, the book really is about our origins. Uh, it's, a, it's about God's plan and His design for our lives, and, and it has theological implications, as Pastor Sean's already demonstrated for us along the way. And if we, if we get the book of Genesis wrong, right, if we miss those theological implications, we'll, we're going to get everything wrong. And so the book of Genesis and, and, and understanding it the way that the Lord would have us to understand it is vitally important for us to understand the rest of this uh, God-breathed book uh, called the Bible. And so in the spirit of that this morning, we're going to look at marriage, and I, and I have this sermon organized <clears throat> under three questions, uh, if you will, and, and we provided, provided that for you uh, in your uh, sermon blanks this morning. And the, the three questions that, I'm, that I've organized this sermon under is, is marriage. What, what's, the, what's the Bible's definition of it? It's the first question. The second question is, what's the, what's the bigger picture of our marriages? And then the third question that we're going to address that I believe the scriptures speak to directly is, what, what's, the, what's the purpose of marriage? And before we dive in, I'd like you to, to, to just, I want to I make a note about the, the first two uh, chapters that we see here in the book of Genesis um, since we've been addressing them over the last few weeks. Uh, Adam and Eve, the, the, uh, the first man and the first woman, right? the, the first husband, the first wife, they were, they were created without sin. We can't even comprehend that. They were created without sin, and they had the capacity to obey God 
and worship God in a way that would actually earn them eternal life. Eden, Eden was, was never intended to, to be Adam and Eve's final resting place. It was never intended for, for it to be their permanent home, right? So when we think of, sometimes you may hear it said, man, one day the Lord's going to return us back to the Garden of Eden. You don't want that, right? There was a serpent and there was a tree, the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. We don't want that. We want something better than Eden. That's what Adam and Eve were that's what they were working towards. That's what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. Okay, this is what theologians call the, the covenant of works. God made a, a covenant with Adam right before he created Eve, and it's found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. It says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. It's Genesis 2. Okay, we, we know that Adam and the prophets understood this to be a covenant, even though we don't find that word there. And we get that uh, from the, uh, the, the book of Hosea, uh, chapter 6, the first part of verse 7. It says, but like Adam, they, speaking of the Israelites, they transgressed the covenant. So like I said, I, we gather here that, that Eden wasn't the final resting place for man. In Eden, before the fall, Adam and his soon-to-be helpmate, Eve, they were to worship and obey God in the garden. And if they did so, they could actually earn eternal life. They were the only people ever created with the capacity to be able to do that. This is the covenant of works that, that God made with them. Okay, so, so it's in this context, the reason why I give you that is that that's the context where God defines marriage for us. That we're, that's where we find ourselves this morning. And this is the, the perfect marriage, right? The, the only perfect marriage that we see here. And it's one that brings honor and glory to the Lord. So what, what's the Bible's definition of marriage? We find that in verses 24 through 25 of Genesis 2. It says this. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. It's the Georgian word for naked. And they were not ashamed. Why don't you pray with me, and we're going to dive in and, and, and work through this together this morning. Heavenly Father, God, I, um, Lord, I pray that you would give me the grace to help me to apply the things that we're going to discuss this morning. God, I, I fall short of being the husband that you've called me to be. I need, I need the greater husband, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we look to him this morning as the, not just our Savior, but as this template for what our marriages should look like. And we give you all the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're taking notes, the first thing you're going to want to fill out is this is marriage. This is marriage. Genesis 2, 24 through 25 is the only acceptable marriage in the eyes of God. Genesis 2, 24 through 25 is the only acceptable marriage in the eyes of God. There, there, there's no substitute. 
There's no substitute for this. God established a, a, a rhythm of work and rest prior to the fall of man, right? Pastor Sean addressed that last week. And he created and he established marriage before the fall of man. And both are reaffirmed throughout the Old and the New Testament. Both are reaffirmed throughout the Old and the New Testament. Our scripture here indicates that, that Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. They were naked and not ashamed, right? A, 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 a God-centered marriage without shame. A God-centered marriage without shame. This passage indicates to us that Adam and Eve, they, they, didn't, even, they didn't even know what shame was. Right? That's incredible, isn't it? Even the nudity in this passage here it indicates the, the, the purity of this commitment that, that Adam and Eve enjoyed because their delight was in God alone. Right? There, there's, there's no distortion. There's no, there's no perversion of that in, in this passage of Scripture. There were two people, man and woman, joined together and committed to worshiping and obeying God. And as they did that, they looked forward to eternal life, away from the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and away from the serpent. That's what their aim was as they gazed at, at their creator together as husband and wife unashamed. So, so now we, we may well say, well, that was before sin entered the picture, Things have changed since then. So so now what? And and the temptation for us could be to to import some some modified standard of marriage that's in competition with the marriage that God established here in Genesis chapter 2. The temptation is to, to import some modified standard so that it's more suitable for folks. We have to flee the temptation to do that, right? It, if you flip over to your New Testament, in Mark chapter 10, we see Jesus reaffirming this standard that God's defined for, for us right from the very beginning. It says this, this is this dialogue that he's having with the Pharisees. It says, and the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he, Jesus, answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, right, he appeals to, to God's created order of things. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. By the way, that's a controversial statement, isn't it? He made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. You may hear that when you go to a wedding, right? That, that piece at the very end there. Now let's press into this psalm, right? Like the Sabbath, marriage, it was instituted before the fall of man, and it was reaffirmed in both the Old and New Testaments. Okay, here Jesus reaffirms marriage as, as God instituted it in the garden, and he also roots it in God's assigned genders. That's fascinating to me. 
Marriage is a permanent earthly covenant between one man and one woman. Marriage is a permanent earthly covenant between one man and one woman. It's interesting to me that that when the federal government thought that it had the authority to redefine marriage, not that long after we see the federal government thinking that it has the authority to redefine gender. They go hand in hand, right? The government doesn't have the authority to redefine marriage or gender the same, the same way the federal government didn't create the cosmos out of nothing. So in Mark, Jesus brings gender and marriage together. And here we have our society rebelling against both of those things. Now, if we as a local church, if, if, if we, you know, we, we clearly see the problem of the broader culture, but if, it, if we ever want to, 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 to promote a change in our culture by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have to be diligent by repenting of our own sins, right? We, we have to lead through our repentance. We can't lead any other way. If we want to see a change in our culture, we have to lead through our repentance. A lot of times where we can find ourselves focused more on the broader culture sins than we're focused on our own sins within the local church here. I'll give you an example. People who are a part of this local body of believers here are constantly breaking their marriage covenant. Constantly breaking their marriage covenant. And there's some of you sitting in this room this morning and you're thinking about divorce. You're thinking about divorce. Somewhere along the way, you've, you've forgotten your covenant and you don't want to make it work. You tell yourself that, that if you're a husband or if you're a wife would just change, if, if they would be the ones that would change, then you'd stick around. You've forgotten that you've made a commitment before the Lord. My wife and I, uh, her name's Braden, we've been married for um, seven years. And Pastor Sean did our premarital counseling, and he was also the one that performed our marriage ceremony. And for a short period of time, we thought that it would be neat to write our own vows. And, uh, and so I went away, wrote my vows, she went away, wrote her vows, and we submitted them to Pastor Sean. And uh, he reviewed them. And later I found out that he and Braden had like a, a conversation that I wasn't invited to. And... Um, to, to discuss my vows, and uh, apparently it's, it's, it's not good to bring up the word divorce in your, your marriage vows, and there was something about saying the words, Braden, I vow I won't divorce you ever, that lacked some sort of poetic flair. It just what, wasn't quite what folks were looking for uh, on our wedding day, so we ended up with the traditional vows, right? Even though they didn't make the vow cut, I don't want to forget that, right? I, I don't want to forget my vow to, 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 not, give, to not give up in this marriage. Right? I, I, I don't want to forget my identity in Christ, and I don't want to forget the promise that I made to my wife before the God of the cosmos. I don't want to forget that. 
Now, some of you in this room may be jumping to the exceptions, right? What about the exceptions for divorce in Scripture? I'm not bringing the exceptions up because it's not, it's not my focus this morning. Our church has no problem, and when I say church, I'm not just meaning coastal, I mean the broader church at large, the universal church. We have no problem remembering the exceptions, right? We have no problem with that little disclaimer at the bottom of you can get out if this. We have a problem with a high view of marriage. And if, if God's church doesn't have a high view of marriage, how in the world can we expect the broader, how can we be offended when the broader culture distorts marriage? We can't even get it right when here. Men, if you call yourself a Christian this morning, a Christian husband, God's calling you to be a faithful husband. Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. Women, if, you're, if you call yourself a Christian woman, God's calling you to be a faithful wife. Paul says in Ephesians 5 as well, wives submit. By the way, men, if you love and cherish and nurture your wife in the Lord, she's going to want to follow you. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Elsewhere, Paul instructs women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled and pure and working at home and kind and submissive to their own husbands. This is what being a faithful husband and a faithful wife, this is what it looks like. Hey, so what's the bigger picture, right? This is the way that God defines marriage. That's his standard for marriage. But why is it so strict? Why is it, why is it narrow? There's a good reason for this. And in order for us to understand why God's so serious about our marriage covenant, we need to understand what marriage communicates. I think we've lost sight of that somewhere along the way. What's the bigger picture here? And, and how in the world can we move uh, toward, and, and sinfully, right? Because we're, we're sinful people. But how can we move toward, nonetheless, this type of marriage that brings honor and glory to God? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Some of you may have already turned there already. Paul says this in verses 31 through 32 here. It says, therefore... <clears throat> Right, this is getting repetitive right here, isn't it? We've, we've heard this, this passage a few times already in other places. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
Okay, here we have the Apostle Paul, he's reaffirming God's standard for marriage, right? We see this theme of one flesh continue. We've seen Jesus reaffirm marriage uh, the way that God established it in the garden, and now we see the Apostle Paul uh, amening Jesus' affirmation, who was amening uh, the standard that we see from the beginning. I've counseled couples before who've asked me the question of what, what does this one flesh union mean? How are we to, to understand this? While the one flesh union certainly has this sexual component to it, that's 1 Corinthians 6, that's not the, the main idea of this particular passage. Okay, Paul, uh, he does want to convey a, a deep intimacy to the church in Ephesus and, and to us as readers by utilizing the, the one flesh language. But we need to understand this as some commentary that he's giving us to help us understand the bigger picture of marriage. Okay, so here we go. Marriage is an earthy picture of Christ's relationship with the church. Christ is an, marriage is an earthy picture of Christ's relationship <clears throat> with the church. Right? Marriage is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? We need to internalize that. Marriage is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a shadow right? or a type that should point us toward Christ's marriage with his local church. Right? It should be pointing us to our faithful husband, the only faithful husband, which is Christ Jesus our Lord. That's, that's why the biblical definition of, of marriage is so narrow. The gospel of Jesus Christ is narrow. There are multiple ways to, to come at the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's only one way to come at the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if marriage is an earthy picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then certainly there's only one way. If it's communicating something to us about the gospel, then certainly there's only one way that we can approach this marriage relationship. And Paul says this one flesh union is a profound mystery. This mystery that Paul's talking about here is Christ's intimate union with his church. I think about Genesis 2 knowing that it reflects what God has done for us in the gospel. Jesus left heaven, leave, right? And through his person and his work, he made himself one flesh with us, his bride, cleave. You ever read that leave and cleave passage with the gospel in mind? That's crazy, isn't it? This makes marriage relevant to both singles and couples, right? Think about that. Our marriages tell the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul's communicating in this passage, and it's the purpose of marriage from the beginning of time as we, as we know it. Jesus, he's, he's wedded himself to us, his bride, through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And his, his life is so closely identified with ours that Paul says we're one flesh, one flesh. The church is one flesh with Christ Jesus. This means that, that Jesus Christ doesn't withhold anything from us. Aren't you glad that your Savior doesn't withhold, your husband doesn't withhold anything from you, your, your great husband Christ? Right? This means that Jesus doesn't have a separate bank account. Right? Could you imagine if he did? The discord. 
He gives us, according to Ephesians 1.3, every spiritual blessing. It's because we're one flesh with him that his righteousness is counted as our righteousness. Right? We stand before God the Father cloaked in the righteousness of Jesus because Christ has faithfully wedded himself to us. This is the covenant he has with us and this is a covenant that he'll keep. There's no danger of divorce. Christ says, I will never divorce you. Christ's bride is safe. Christ's bride is secure. He's a good and generous husband. I think Paul puts it best in Romans 8. It says, for I'm sure that neither neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? Earlier, Paul states, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul answers with a resounding no. Nothing. It sounds a lot like for better or for worse to me. I will not divorce you. Praise God that Christ keeps his covenant to us. And he stays married to us despite our unfaithfulness to him. This is the bigger picture of our marriage. All right, continue to hold this bigger picture in mind because there's some implications that I'd like to draw from this one flesh union we share with Christ. Point three here, the state of our marriage. Okay, I'm speaking, I'm speaking to the church here. The state of our marriage communicates what we believe about Christ and the gospel. And I mean believe practically. Okay, the, 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 the state of our marriage communicates what we believe practically about Christ and the gospel. This is where our theology becomes practical. And everybody in this room, by the way, is a theologian. Every single person in this room is a theologian. Every single day you're communicating verbally and practically what you believe and what you don't believe about God. Even an atheist is a theologian in his declaration of God does not exist. All right, we're all theologians in this room. Now, this is some further commentary into Ephesians chapter 5, but, but when I'm reading Ephesians 5, verses 24 through 25, I'm seeing, or 24 and a, and a couple of verses into that, I'm seeing Christ tell the husband that he's to lay his life down as Christ laid his life down for the church. Okay, I'm seeing this, this, this reflection that should be going on in our marriages. If marriages are, in fact, an earthy picture of our relationship uh, of, of Christ's relationship with his local church, okay? And so, so the Apostle Paul is using this logic to say that our marriages indicate what we believe practically about the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Okay, so if I tell my wife, Braden that I love and that I cherish her, but I'm never home, right? I, I refuse to, to invest in her spiritually and emotionally because I'm too busy at work. Or if I don't provide for her needs and her spiritual well-being, then I have bad practical theology, right? Right. Furthermore, I'm communicating something, whether I intend to or not, to Braden about Christ. If, if my one flesh union with her is a picture of Christ in the church, the husband being the head like Christ and the church being the bride, like the, uh, the body, the bride, like, like the wife is, 
that I'm communicating something to my wife about Christ. I'm practically, maybe not verbally, but practically saying to Braden, Christ is not kind. Christ is too busy for you. Christ is, is, is not concerned about your spiritual, emotional, or physical well-being. If, if Braden were to offend me, and I withhold forgiveness from her, and I say, I'm not going to forgive you, Braden, and I allow bitterness to take root into my heart and in my life and in the way that I interact with her, I am saying practically, God in Christ is unforgiving. There are sins that are simply unforgivable. Even worse, I'm practically declaring that my requirements for righteousness supersede the, the righteous requirements of God. And I'm practically communicating that Christ's sacrifice was not sufficient to cover her sin. If I were to cheat on Braden, whether that be indulging myself in pornography or I have an actual affair, if I were to cheat on Braden, I am saying practically that her Savior is an adulterer. I'd be communicating the same thing to my son. Out of one side of my mouth, I'd encourage him that Jesus is trustworthy, while practically I would be saying that Christ abandons those that he loves. Right, we, we need to feel the seriousness of our marriage covenant. Because Paul, Paul says that it communicates something about the gospel this side of eternity. It's what I'm picking up from Paul here. Marriage was created primarily to promote the gospel, and we're going to see that here in just a moment. But it's good for us as a church to think about our sins in this way when we sin against one another. We need to see the vulgar offense of our sins not only against our spouse, but we need to see the vulgar offense that we commit against our spouse is a vulgar offense, blasphemous offense against the God of the universe. We got to think about that more. I'm convinced it would change the way that we interact. So many times we have bad practical theology, and this is what quickly stifles our gospel witness to the broader society. In a, in a, in a quick note, <clears throat> we're going to mess up, right? We're, we're going to mess up. We're, we're going to dishonor our spouse, and we're going to dishonor the Lord. Okay, some of, some of you have already done that on your way here to corporate worship this morning, right? Before coffee. Right? We're going to mess up. We're going to mess up. So the question is, how can we flee the temptation of doing this habitually? Right? How can we repent of our bad practical theology? In this way is the remedy. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. We overcomplicate it, don't we? Christ is the author and the finisher of, of, of your faith. I must learn to be a faithful husband from my faithful husband. It's the only way I can do it. I must rest in his finish and his secure work for me. And out of that will spring the practical principles that the scripture gives us regarding our marriages, both, both to men and to women. Right, if you, if you were, the way we overcomplicate it is this, right? We go to a Lifeway Christian bookstores or whatever bookstore that you choose to shop at, Amazon, and the, um, just kidding, the, um, 
But we, 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 pick, we look through these books on marriages, right, that are Christian books, and it's like 12 steps to a great marriage, 40 steps to a great marriage, 50 steps to five love languages, and the, the, um, and the pile keeps going on and on and on. And so while those books may have something, like, helpful in them, and I'm sure that many of the authors, not all of them, but many of the authors have good intentions for our marriages, we need to look to the gospel. Right, we're... we're Somewhere along the line, we're not tethered to the gospel in our 12 steps programs. We need to tether ourselves to the scripture. We need our husband. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit will recall the gospel of Jesus Christ to our minds. We need to be informed by the scriptures, right? Coastal, here's your faithful husband. Listen, this is your faithful husband. This is what we need. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. 2 Corinthians 7, or for, uh, 2 Corinthians here, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry, the message of reconciliation. Hebrews 12, we did a sermon series in Hebrews last year, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seen Seated at the right hand of, of the throne of God, we just sang about that. Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. That has massive, that will do more for your marriage than any self help book. Looking to Christ as our faithful husband will allow us to reflect his union with us in our marriages. Because the Holy Spirit lives in us, we do have the ability, Coastal, to pursue a Genesis 2 marriage. We do have the ability to promote a Genesis 2 marriage. It's a, a marriage that is a shadow of Christ's relationship with the church. Now we've come to the final question. What's the purpose of it? Right, what, in other words, what, what does two people gazing at Christ do in a marriage? The purpose of marriage is to announce the kingdom of God. The purpose of marriage is to announce the kingdom of God. There's a great commission aspect to our marriages. If our marriages are, are communicating the particulars of the gospel, right, his, his, the way he's wedded himself to the church... Right, then certainly our marriages should make us more productive for announcing that message that our marriages point to. Right? Oftentimes, we as pastors at, the church, at, at this church, we, um, we get asked about dating relationships. And the question <clears throat> goes like this. How do I know that fill-in-the-blank is the one? Right? We've probably all asked ourselves that question at some point in our lives. How do I know that so-and-so is the one? I think a more appropriate question for singles to ask is, will marrying this person make me more productive for the kingdom of God or less productive for the kingdom of God? Do we think about our relationships in that way? Husbands and wives in unity should be announcing the gospel of grace that's been entrusted to them. 
And they do this in two ways according to Genesis, right? We go back to Genesis here. Having dominion and being fruitful and multiplying. Right? That takes us back to Genesis 1, the first part of verse 28 there. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. One aspect of having dominion is announcing the universal lordship of Jesus Christ to the nations. That's what we're called to do. Right? Our, our marriages, coastal, should, should be joyfully proclaiming this truth. And it, and it should be unstifled by any habitual conflict that may be going on in our marriage. Let me encourage you this morning. If you're having a habitual uh, and ongoing conflict in your marriage, forget about who's right and who's wrong. Who cares? Who ca- we bicker like children, and then we discipline the children when they bicker. It's insane to me. Who cares who's right or who's wrong? You're wasting time. God's given you this, this vapor of a life, and you're wasting it because you're more concerned about who's right or who's wrong. You could be delighting in Christ. You could be loving and cherishing each other and fulfilling the Great Commission. Instead, you're, warning about, you're worried about winning some standoff with this person that you vowed to protect and cherish and love and better and worse. You, you can't even announce the universal lordship of Christ to the nations if you can't announce the universal lordship of Jesus Christ in your marriage. We're also to be obedient to being fruitful and multiplying. Yes, by, by having kids, but more so by uh, admonishing them toward, toward faith in Christ Jesus through faithfully teaching them the gospel and word and, and, and through, through your Christ-centered marriage. For those of us who, who may be married and without kids, you're to be faithful to this as well, being fruitful and multiplying by spreading the good news to the nation, thereby having spiritual sons and spiritual daughters. Right? That applies to singles as well. The Great Commission covers that. I'm going to spend some time on that in the coming weeks. But The point here is that Christ-centered marriages, they're not consumed with one another positively or negatively. Christ-centered marriages are busy gazing at Christ together and fulfilling the Great Commission in their homes and in the nations. And in order to do that, we must leave and cleave with the gospel in mind. Leave and cleave with the gospel in mind. There's a commentator that I enjoy. His name's F.F. Bruce. He says this, He says, so here, Genesis 2.24, which on the surface explains why a man will leave his parents' home and live with his wife, is taken to convey a deeper hidden meaning, a mystery, which could not be understood until Christ, get this, until Christ who loved his people from eternity gave himself up for them in the fullness of time. In the light of his saving work, the hidden meaning of Genesis 2.24 now begins to appear. His people constitute his bride united to him in one body. The formation of Eve to be Adam's companion is seen to prefigure the creation of the church to be the bride of Christ. This seems to be the the deep mystery contained in the text, which remains a mystery no longer to to those who've received this interpretation. Seth F. Bruce. Leaving and cleaving with the gospel in mind, it means to remember that Christ left heaven 
and he came and he served us by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we too leave the home we knew and die to ourselves and serve Christ by cleaving to our spouse, honoring our covenant, and fulfilling the great commission. Our marriages echo loudly the redemptive message of the gospel. And because Christ came and reconciled us and deposited his Holy Spirit within us, we really do have the capacity to have a Genesis 2 marriage, a God-centered, gospel-saturated marriage. As the band comes out to close us out, I just want to encourage you, if, if, if there's contention in your marriage... Make it right this morning. There's a prayer team that will be in the prayer chapel that would love to pray with you about the state of your marriage. But for the glory of God and the sake of your soul and because you have the great commission in mind, love Christ enough to, to set things right. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that our marriages point us to Jesus Christ. And so, God, I pray more and more as we conform into the image of Jesus Christ that our marriages would remind us of your faithfulness to us. And so, Lord, we love you. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.